I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. Welcome to OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. This week we're back with Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and we'll be covering Book 1, Chapter 5, of The Real and Nominal Price of Commodities, or Their Price in Labor and Their Price in Money. As always, Smith has a real knack for a catchy title. Now, as I mentioned last time, this chapter and, and the two that follow it are kind of continuations and expansions of, of some of the thoughts introduced in the last chapter. Here, and in the chapters that follow, Smith wants to explore the idea of value and price. Just like when he introduced the idea of, of where money came from, this is one of those concepts that I think most of us take for granted. I mean, what is the value of something? It's the price, right? Well, where does the price come from? Now, that's one to think about. Really, how do businesses and manufacturers determine the price of their goods? And how do we determine if that is a fair price? What's the underlying constant that allows us to gauge value in our minds? Well, Smith thinks that he has the answer to that, that one. He, he starts off the chapter with this passage. <clears throat> Quote, Every man is rich or poor according to the degree in which he can afford to enjoy the necessaries, conveniences, and, amu and amusements of human life. But after the division of labor has once thoroughly taken place, it is but a very small part of these which a man's own labor can supply him. The far greater part of them, he must derive from the labor of other people. And he must be rich or poor according to the quantity of that labor which he can command or which he can afford to purchase. The value of any commodity, therefore, to the person who possesses it and who means not to use it or consume it himself, but to exchange it 
for other commodities is equal to the quantity of labor which it enables him to purchase or command. Labor, therefore, is the real measure of the exchangeable value of all commodities. The real price of everything, what everything really costs to the man who wants to acquire it, is the toil and trouble to acquire it. What everything is really worth to the man who has acquired it, and who wants to dispose of it or exchange it for something else, is the toil and trouble which it can save to himself, and which it can impose on other people. What is bought with money, or with goods, is purchased by labor, as much as what we acquire by toil of our own body. That money, or those goods, indeed save us the toil. They contain the value of a certain quantity of labor, which we exchange for what is supposed at the time to contain the value of an equal quantity. <sighs> Sorry for the long quote, but to set up this idea, I thought, I thought it was important to show Smith's line of thinking in full, in his own words, because this idea is still one of contention among economists. Modern economists don't necessarily accept this as absolute truth, but at the same time, many of them have a hard time coming up with a better answer. As you'll see as we continue through the chapter, finding a constant in the realm of value is, is trickier than you might think. But before we get too deep into the woods, let's go back and unpack some of the ideas in that quote from the beginning of the chapter, and at least for the moment, We'll take Smith at his word that he's right about his claims. So, labor is the real measure of value, and this sort of makes sense. After all, all labor is in the pursuit of making our lives livable. First we work for basic survival, then for comfort, and then for enjoyment and fulfillment. When you're doing your personal budget, you typically pay your mortgage or rent first, then you cover your groceries, then the heat, then the cable and internet, and with what's left you buy some movie tickets or something like that. Of course, under the division of labor, you don't have to labor directly on your survival, comfort, or fulfillment. You can labor at whatever it is you want to labor at. And use the proceeds of that to purchase the necessaries of survival, comfort, and fulfillment. But though you're paying for those things in money, the source of that money was your original labor. On top of that, the things that you are purchasing with that money are being purchased so as to save you the labor of having to produce them yourself. You probably could, if, if you had to, build a serviceable hut for yourself. Four walls and a roof. Without advanced carpentry experience it may be you know pretty uh, flimsy but it would protect you from the elements but you're not a carpenter you're a legal assistant by trade and you would rather not take the additional time to cut down trees fashion them into lumber and build a house so instead you work as a legal assistant and you use the money that you're paid for that for that to purchase a home, thus saving you the labor of having to do it yourself. This system, going back to the first chapter, allows us to specialize in our given profession rather than having to be a jack of all trades. 
So in Smith's view, you're not purchasing a home when you pay your rent or mortgage. What, what you're really doing is you're paying money to spare yourself the labor of having to do something yourself. Your actual purchase is that of avoiding bother, or as Smith puts it, toil. And just as Smith feels that we can best understand the nature of money by examining its origins, he also feels that the nature of value is best found by looking at where the idea of valuation would have originally come from. He says, quote, Labor was the first price, the original purchase money that was paid for all things. It was not by gold or by silver, but by labor that all the wealth of the world was originally purchased, and its value to those who possess it and who want to exchange it for some new productions is precisely equal to the quantity of labor which it can enable them to purchase or command. Now, taking this idea and extrapolating it a little, one could conclude that the value of something, whether it's your home or the car you drive or the phone that you're listening to this podcast on, is best determined by the amount of effort put into making it. Now, that kind of idea is what will, through later extrapolation by others, become what is known as labor theory of valuation, or labor theory of value. We could do a whole episode on the labor theory of value, but for our purposes today, let's just stick with a quote that probably best sums up the, the underlying philosophy of the labor theory of value. Quote, Socially necessary labor time is the labor time required to produce any use value under the conditions of production normal for a given society and with the average degree of skill and intensity of labor prevalent in that society. What exclusively determines the magnitude of the value of any article is therefore the amount of labor socially necessary or the labor time socially necessary for its production. Of course, that's what's really interesting about that quote is that while it lines up fairly directly with what Smith is talking about in this chapter, the author of that quote, uh, and the reason I did that voice for him, uh, is none other than uh, that least funny of all the Marx brothers, Karl Marx. Uh, that's right. Uh, that quote is straight from Das Kapital. Uh, unfortunately... A full examination of the parallels between the writings of Marx and Smith will have to wait for another time. For now, I'll just tease it a little by saying that when you read Smith and Marx side by side, it, it reminds me of that documentary that came out maybe five or six years ago called uh, Room 237. Uh, it, it's a documentary that interviews eight or nine different people who all provide what they feel is the definitive underlying message of Stanley Kubrick's movie The Shining. Their theories range from it being a movie that is secretly about the plight of Native Americans uh, to it being a movie that serves as a subtle confession on the part of Stanley Kubrick for having been the director who helped NASA fake the moon landing. It's really worth a watch, but What's always struck me about Room 237 is is less the outlandish theories that, that people put forward and more that eight or nine people all watched the exact same movie 
and they all walked away thinking that it was saying eight or nine different things. And that's kind of the best synopsis of, of those moments when, when Smith and Mark seem to be on the same page. They're both noticing the same thing and then eventually drawing very different conclusions from it. For now, whatever weight we want to lend to what the labor theory of value would eventually become based on the writing of Marx, what we can say for certain is, sorry, Carl, but Smith said it first. So if labor is the prime currency, and labor, or at least the ability to avoid performing labor yourself, is the ultimate purchase that is being made with that currency, then wealth under this notion would be determined by one's ability to purchase labor. Smith says, giving uh, Thomas Hobbes a little shout-out, uh, he says, quote, Wealth, as Mr. Hobbes says, is power. But the person who either acquires or succeeds to a great fortune does not necessarily acquire or succeed to any political power, either civil or military. His fortune may, perhaps, afford him the means to acquire both, but the mere possession of that fortune does not necessarily convey him either. The power which that possession immediately and directly conveys to him is the power of purchasing a certain command over all labor or over all the produce of labor which is then in the market his fortune is greater or less precisely in proportion to the extent of this power or to the quantity of either of other men's labor or what is the same thing of the produce of other men's labor which enables him to purchase or command the exchangeable value of everything must always be precisely equal to the extent of this power which it conveys to the owner. And again, this would seem to continue Smith's line of thinking towards the labor theory of value. Except there's a problem. As I said before, most modern economists reject the labor theory of value, and, and while a fair amount of pushback on it stems from being opposed to the tenets of Marxism, that kind of knee-jerk root doesn't make the critics wrong. If value is entirely and exclusive, uh, exclusively derived from the amount of labor put into making a thing, then value, and thus price, has no connection to the enjoyment derived from purchasing and possessing that thing. The labor theory of value dismisses this entirely, thus making no distinction in value for an, an item that you want very much, or, or absolutely require, and an item that you already own or don't want. The value of that item would only be determined by the labor that went into making it. A synthesis of these two aspects of the process, the labor that went into making a thing, and how much a consumer wants that thing would be a much more accurate gauge of the value of that thing. And, and if you think that what I just said there was incredibly profound, don't give me too much credit, because another way of saying it would be that price is determined where supply intersects demand. So I didn't exactly blow the lid off this one. Alfred Marshall beat me to it by like 100 years. 
There's also a much more practical criticism of the labor theory of value, and that is that labor as a means of determining value is really hard to precisely quantify across different types of industries. If labor is based on the opportunity cost of the laborer working at his job rather than doing other, more enjoyable things, then the amount of time a job takes to complete is the key to value. Uh, a simple cart or wheelbarrow may take you five hours of labor to make, while a more elaborate carriage for carrying passengers may take a week. In which case, the labor theory of value could work because the simple cart would cost less than the elaborate carriage. And it makes sense that it should. But if that elaborate carriage takes a week of labor, and say uh, an author takes five years to finish writing his next book, I'm talking to you, George R. R. Martin, should that book then sell for 360 times more than the cost of the carriage? Probably not. It, it comes down to the problem that different kinds of work require different kinds of labor, and that labor has its own degrees of opportunity costs and requires different kinds of pre-existing talents and skills. So simply ascribing value based on how much labor went into making a thing doesn't provide a reasonable concept of value. And this practical criticism of the labor theory of value carries some extra weight because the first person to put forward this point was Adam Smith in this very chapter. In fact, he does it in the very next paragraph after stating that labor is the absolute determiner of value. He says, quote, But though labor be the real measure of the exchangeable value of all commodities, it is not that by which their value is commonly estimated. It is often difficult to ascertain the proportion between two different quantities of labor. The time spent in two different sorts of work will not always alone determine this proportion. The different degrees of hardship endured and the ingenuity exercise must likewise be taken into account. There may be more labor in an hour's hard work than in two hours easy business, or in an hour's application to a trade which it costs ten years labor to learn, than in a month's industry at an ordinary and obvious employment. So to Smith, yes, labor is the ultimate determiner of value. but. Determining the value of labor is incredibly hard to do. And in the most practical of senses, Smith doesn't think that it's necessary to actually try to figure out any kind of universal value of labor. Because it's precise, or at least precise enough value, can be calculated for us. Smith writes, <clears throat> quote, but it's not easy to find any accurate measure of either hardship or ingenuity in exchanging indeed the different productions of different sorts of labor for one another some allowance is commonly made for both it is adjusted however not by any accurate measure but by the higgling and bargaining of the market according to that sort of rough equality which though not exact is sufficient for carrying out the business of common life. 
And here we get into uh, yet another early allusion to what we will eventually discuss as the invisible hand. But for now, Smith is simply saying that the value of each person's labor across all trades and skills is determined not through some grand philosophy or rigid equation, but through the action of exchanging in the market. Not every purchase will be made at the exact value of a good or service, but through a kind of trial and error process, the market will gradually walk in the price to the point of its real value. When someone introduces a new product to the market, they might overestimate or underestimate its value. They may try to charge too much, or they may try to charge too little. But through the process of making or failing to make transactions, they will adjust their price based on the actions of consumers to a point where they will eventually find the real value of the item. But Smith isn't entirely satisfied with this conclusion. Or rather he is, but he still wants to elaborate. Because he wouldn't be Adam Smith if he didn't want to elaborate. Uh, So he wants to elaborate on this point mainly to demonstrate just how right he is about it. He starts by noting that the value of a given commodity is commonly conceived of in relation to some other commodity. We talked about this in earlier episodes, where in a pure exchange economy, my wheat was valued in terms of your cattle, and vice versa. And this is a somewhat easier notion to grasp for most people because, as Smith puts it, quote, the greater part of people, too, understand better what is meant by a quantity of a particular commodity than by a quantity of labor. The one is a plain, palpable object, the other an abstract notion, which, though it can be made sufficiently intelligible, is not altogether so natural and obvious. Of course, That held much truer back when we were operating under a barter system. Ever since the creation of money, however, we tend to think of valuation in terms of money because, after all, we're not directly exchanging labor for commodities or even commodities for other commodities. We're exchanging labor for money and money for commodities. So it might be tempting to say that the the truest and best way to create an idea of value is in terms of the relationship between money and either labor or commodities. Because, after all, that's how we, as consumers, frame purchases within the marketplace. But, there's a problem with both those notions. And that problem is that neither money or other commodities rigidly retain their value. They both tend to fluctuate. Now I'm sure that you're, you all can easily picture the value of commodities fluctuating. With, with that, it's, it's really just a simple matter of supply and demand. If we're assessing all value based on the value of corn, and there's a massive blight of, of most of the corn crops, the price of corn will skyrocket. But if we're basing all ideas of value off of corn, then my day's labor used to be worth five years of corn. 
or more precisely, five years of corn worth of silver. Those five years of corn are now worth significantly more, even though my labor hasn't changed. Because commodities can rise or fall in value, independent of everyone's labor in their own trades, then it's possible for value of some something constant, like how much time and effort I put into my job, to change without me changing anything. And that lack of consistency doesn't make for a great system of valuation. And of course, money isn't much better. We've already covered how nations can inflate their currency at will, thus diminishing its value, and thus while you might have been getting paid three silver coins week to week, it's possible that while you're still doing the same work and getting paid the same three silver coins, those coins are now worth less because of the actions taken outside of your control. But it's not just inflation that can have this effect, but I mean also really just basic supply issues because despite what many would have you believe, precious metal currency is not always the most constant or stable thing. Never forget that when your coinage is made of precious metals and that coin's value is based on the underlying quantities of that precious metal within it, your currency's value is really based on a commodity. Silver and gold, when, when not in the form of coined money, are commodities, just like anything else. And like any other commodity, their value can and will fluctuate based on known supply and demand. Smith notes that, that when, a, when huge silver deposits and gold mines were discovered in the Americas during the 16th century, the value of gold and silver, as well as the currencies based on them, dropped to about a third of their previous value. Taking a commodity and turning it into a currency does not insulate it from the potential fluctuations in value that can affect commodities. As Smith puts it, quote, As a measure of quantity, such as a natural foot, fathom, or handful, which is continuously varying in its own quantity, can never be an accurate measure of quantity of other things. So a commodity, which is itself continuously varying in its own value, can never be an accurate measure of other commodities. Equal quantities of labor, at all times and places, may be said to be of equal value to the labor. In his ordinary state of health, strength, and spirits, in the ordinary degree of his skills and dexterity, he must always lay down the same portion of his ease, his liberty, and his happiness. The price that he pays must always be the same, whatever may be the quantity of goods which he receives in return for it. Of these, indeed, it may sometimes purchase a greater or smaller quantity, but it is their value that varies, not that of the labor which purchases them. So we're back to labor being the one constant, and every other possible measure of value being susceptible to variation to the point where nothing else can be relied upon to accurately and consistently express value. Yet labor is still no easier to accurately value. 
But Smith has a trick up his sleeve here to, to solve this standoff. He decides that value must be broken into two parts, that things don't actually have one price, but rather two prices that express their value. This is where he distinguishes between what he calls the real price and the nominal price. Now, Smith insists that real price is purely based on labor. And again, there are a great many economists today that would dispute or at least alter that idea. But this distinction is hugely important. And while what may go into real price can be debated, the idea of breaking these two things into entirely separate ideas was a big deal. In the interest of usefulness, I'm going to give you a slightly more modern interpretation of the, the real and nominal price here. And I'm defining these things, but, but I will say, Smith is not far off in his description. The real price is a price that is adjusted for inflation, or, or really any kind of variation. But in the modern sense, we're usually talking about inflation. The nominal price is not adjusted for any kinds of variations. It is simply the price of something at that time expressed in the amount of money it cost at that time. Now, the value of separating these two ideas comes in what you, you can do once they're separated. With real price, you eliminate the exogenous effect of, of variations in value of money, and you can see what changes in the price of a good are happening based only on supply and demand over time. Nominal price, once you compare it to real price, lets you see just how much fluctuation in the price of goods is accounted for by the variations in your measure of value. Again, typically this is variations in currency, and when we're talking about currency, we're usually talking about inflation, but it is not limited to that. These two numbers, calculated separately but placed side by side with each other, largely solve the problem of not having a, a true, calculatable constant by which to assess value. Let me give you an example. One of the commodities that is most often cited as going up in price is gasoline. I'm sure we've all heard someone pine away for the days when you could fill your gas tank for less than $5, and how it's a tragedy that these days that the, the price just keeps going up. Except it doesn't. Those pining for the days when gas was 30 cents a gallon are being blinded by, by nostalgia and only thinking in terms of the nominal price. Yes, in 1959, the average price of a gallon of gas was 30 cents. And in 2015, the average price of a gallon of gas was $2.36. So that's an increase of $2.06 per gallon, and gas today is almost eight times more expensive than it was when your parents were kids, right? Wrong. This is economics, so up is down, left is right, everyone wears hats on their feet, and hamburgers eat people. The average price of a gallon of gas in 2015 at $2.36 was 
actually eight cents cheaper than it was in 1959 at $0.30 per gallon. How is that possible? Through the magic that is real price versus nominal price. The nominal price of a gallon of gas in 1959 was $0.30. But the value of money has changed significantly since 1959. So once we adjust for inflation, the real price of that same 1959 gallon of gas as expressed in terms of the value of money as it is in 2015 was $2.44 per gallon. Again, in 2015, the average price of a gallon of gas was $2.36. So we're actually paying less. In 1918, the average nominal price of a gallon of gas was 25 cents. But adjusted for inflation, the real price that year was actually the highest the gas has ever been at $3.92 per gallon. In 1998, the average nominal price of a gallon of gas was $1.02. But it was actually the all-time low, with a real price of $1.48 in terms of $2,015. The real price lets us make more direct comparisons of value. And it makes sense if you think about it. Despite what's happening to the nominal price, in, in 1918 there would have not have been nearly as much supply of gasoline in the market because oil drilling as we know it today was still a fairly young industry. But as oil drilling became more predominant and more efficient, the supply of gasoline would increase and the price, the real price, would go down. Flip that and look at the nominal price compared to the real price and you can see exactly what kinds of fluctuations were happening with the value of the dollar independent of the price of commodities. These two numbers together give us that accurate picture of value that Smith insisted was necessary. Now Smith spends most of the rest of the chapter giving a very, very, very detailed description of fluctuations in the value of English currency, mainly to definitively prove his point that currency cannot be relied upon to be a constant expression of value. And I will spare you all having to go through that in detail. In the end, of course, he's right. Currency can and will vary in value based on any number of factors. And thus, the nominal price cannot be used by itself as an accurate measure of value. He does, however, make some interesting points in the course of this description that I do think are worth noting. He points out that Quote, in the process, uh, in the progress of industry, commercial nations have found it convenient to coin several different metals into money, gold for larger payments, silver for purchases of moderate value, and copper or some other coarse metal for those of still smaller consideration. They have always, however, considered one of those metals as more peculiar, peculiarly... <laughs> Sorry, folks. More peculiarly 
the measure of value than any of the other two. And this preference seems generally to have been uh, given to the metal which they happened first to make the instrument of commerce. Now he gives examples of this with, with Rome, starting off with copper coins, then expanding into silver and gold, yet always expressing value in terms of the as or the sesterci, uh, which are units of their copper coins. The British, too, exhibit the same quirk in that while they had expanded to gold coins by Adam Smith's day, they, they did then, and they still do to this day, express value in terms of pound sterling, which is an expression of silver. He also talks about the problem with precious metal coins being that a nation runs the risk of their coinage being exported out of the country and melted down, again, because a precious metal coin may be a currency, but the metal it's made out of is a commodity. And if the commodity is even more valuable than the currency, there would be a, a mass destruction of currency in order to cash in on the commodity. However, he notes, this doesn't actually happen in practice. And he chalks it up to a few reasons. Uh, among them, that bullion turned into the mint in England can be exchanged for coins. But there's a delay in the payment for it sometimes up to several months, and that delay serves as a kind of duty or tax, because less money in coins today is worth more than, than what more money several months from now would be. And that's an idea that'll come up in later episodes for sure. He also points out that English coins uh, that do get taken abroad usually find their way back to England because abro <clears throat> quote abroad it could only sell for its weight in bullion at home it would buy more than its weight and again that idea will probably crop up in later episodes but for now that's our show I apologize if, if you've been enjoying the increase in, in audio clips uh, that I've been adding uh, this chapter really didn't lend itself to a, a lot of pop culture references, and and I just really I didn't want to force them in. Uh, I will continue doing that in future episodes if you guys like it. Uh, as always, uh, if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, come and join us on our Facebook group, uh, where you can post a comment or suggest a topic for a future episode. Uh, if you're not a Facebook member and you still want to get in touch. Uh, you can email me directly at okay. Let me tell you tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. That's all one word, no punctuation, no apostrophe, no comma. Um, be sure to take a minute and give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, doing so really helps the podcast get noticed by more people. Uh, thanks to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro for the show. Uh, don't forget that I do now have another podcast out there. It's called Let's Plan a Wedding. And uh, it's m uh, myself and my fiance, And we discuss things involved with planning our wedding, as well as weddings in general. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with another topic episode. And then in two weeks, we'll tackle The Wealth of Nations, Book 1, Chapter 6. With that, I've been Dave Yost. And this has been OK. 
let me tell you why you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So down there in, say, Argentina or Rand McNally, all their water runs backwards? Uh-huh. In fact, in Rand McNally, they wear hats on their feet and hamburgers eat people. Cool. 